Thank you for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream, Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing the new NICE sepsis guidelines. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the teaching fellows in emergency medicine. Uh, my name's Chris Goff. I'm one of the consultants in emergency medicine. So, uh, welcome back to Take Orally, Chris. Uh, a few months ago, uh, Chris was with us to talk about sepsis in general, uh, but uh, we thought because of the, uh, our trust here adopting the new NICE sepsis guidelines, we thought it was a good time to get uh, Chris back in uh, to go through the NICE guidelines with you. So, thank you very much for coming back, Chris. Thanks for having me back, Jamie. Um, so, yeah, the new uh, NICE guidelines are out and they've been out for about six months now, and so got to the point where they're becoming the standard of care here at Nottingham University Hospitals. So we thought we'd go through them with some of the new terminology and just kind of how to use them. So the guidelines in question uh, that we're talking about are uh, NICE guideline uh, NG51, NG51, uh, sepsis, recognition, diagnosis and early management, uh, published in July last year. Uh, we'll put a link up to this uh, on both our uh, Twitter and Facebook pages. And uh, the guidelines really cover how we identify and assess people with suspected sepsis, uh, how we risk stratify them, uh, and then how we manage that suspected sepsis. Yeah, that's perfect. And what's really good, and it's probably worth, if you haven't got them out in front of you yet, is pausing the podcast to go and get them, uh, are the flowcharts. And there are flowcharts for the under fives, the five to twelves, and the over twelves in adults. They refer to both primary care and in hospital. So um, we're going to use the over 12 in hospital one. So as I say, as much as I don't like people stopping listening to us, pause it a sec, go get it in front of you, it's easier to follow through. Okay. So welcome back. I think you have paused us. Uh, so uh, we're now going to start going through the uh, flowcharts now to identify our, our patient with sepsis. Uh, and uh, the first box at the top of the flowchart, Chris here, says person with possible infection and uh, puts even in brackets, you know, think, could this be sepsis? Yeah, and you've got to be aware that um, everybody thinks that septic people will have big temperatures and have got really classic symptoms of um, an infection. It's very obvious and we know that whilst that's true with a number of people, it's not true for everybody. Um, And as it says in that top box, looking at people who've got reasons why you're going to struggle to identify those classic factors. They could be children, uh, especially pre-verbal children, or children who are young and have different physiological parameters to you're used to. It can be um, elderly people who have a habit of disguising things very well. It can be people who don't have English as a first language and understanding what their complaints are is difficult. Uh, and, and finally, people who've got some sort of cognitive impairment who can't tell you what's going on. So if you've got one of those patients, just broaden out your horizon. But if you think someone's got a potential infection, then you need to risk stratify them for sepsis. And it's also mentioned, that as, as well as those patients you spoke about, uh, people who are more vulnerable to sepsis, Chris. So, yeah, that's looking at people who might have a reason why their ability to tolerate an infection is impaired. So the very young and the very old, the very frail, people who've had recent trauma, surgery, or invasive procedure whose body's already had an insult and effect. People have impaired immunity, so that can be either due to an illness or due to the medications we give them. And then anybody who has got a indwelling device, be that a line, a catheter, an implant, or something like an intravenous drug user who's regularly breaching their uh, skin barrier in less than septic conditions. And then finally, the other thing to think about are the pregnant or recently uh, pregnant patients who also have a higher risk for contracting sepsis. Mm. 
and um, also then we'll talk a bit more about source control later on. But there's also this this early idea here in the assessment box saying you know a likely source of infection. So spend that that's in your history taking and in your examination, isn't it? Yeah, and so. When you're thinking about a likely source of infection, you're looking for the symptoms that people give you to give you a guide to where you think this infection might be. So that can be as simple as, I've got a cough with green sputum. I think we'll all agree that's probably going to be a chest infection. I've got pain when I pass water and I pass urine 20 times a day and it hurts in my right, right side of my back. I think we'll all agree that sounds like a UTI in palmitritis. Um, so things like that, if you've got symptoms that guide you to where it is, Brilliant. And so then we're, we're really into uh, risk stratifying our patients. Yeah, so we're on to the part of the flowchart. So, and this is where the terminology is going to change a little bit. So we're talking about high risk uh, red flag sepsis. So the way to go through this is just kind of go through the high risk side, see if people are high risk or not. And if they're not, you can then move down the risk categories. And if in the high risk group, you then work through the that bit. So we're going to start on the, start on the high risk side. There's a list of criteria that make people a high-risk red flag sepsis patient um, and you only need one of them to be high-risk red flag and these are people who need to be sorted out now these aren't people you're going to say I'll catch with them in an hour or so so the guideline advises a senior cl- clinical decision maker and in fact what they really mean is anybody who can prescribe antibiotics because this is what these patients need so you're going to do your blood tests uh, it's going to looking at signs of inflammatory markers and organ dysfunction but importantly the blood cultures are there and it's worth remembering that ideally two sets from two sites before antibiotics if you can, but don't delay antibiotics if you can't, um, and three sites for endocarditis. So having got your blood tests and your blood cultures, the next thing to do is give intravenous antibiotics. And the guideline is quite sensible. It doesn't tell you which one to give. And that's because everywhere is a bit different. So if you've got a source, brilliant, you're source specific. If you haven't, your trust will have a guideline for sepsis of unknown source. And that will cover your local flora, uh, resistant patterns, and what drugs you have available in your pharmacy. And that should be given without delay, and as it says, within one hour of identification of high-risk criteria. And that's important, because that's not one hour of prescription, that's one hour of the patient triggering this red flag sepsis. So that's very, I mean, so here in our emergency department, we have uh, our initial assessment unit where, where patients uh, are first seen to be brought by an ambulance if they've not already been brought through to, to resus. Um, that's the opportunity then for the clinician there to identify these fa- these red flags early um, to save time and to save lives. Yeah, and the evidence is out there that uh, for septic shock, certainly the uh, numbers quoted around 7% mortality increase for every hour that antibiotics are delayed, and that's a fairly sizable risk. So having given your antibiotics, um, you'll have your blood tests, or hopefully a blood gas back. So on the blood test it says do is a blood gas and a venous blood gas is absolutely fine to get a glucose and a lactate measurement so do them from one of your cannulas and you'll get a lactate and then the lactate will help guide you or the blood pressure will help guide you on the need for fluids and generally we tend to be fluid liberal and the one exception here where we might not be so liberal is people who've got a normal lactate and a normal blood pressure so you might just assess their volume status first and feel if they need it but generally we're going to give these people a fluid bolus described here as 500 mils of crystalloid ideally um, over less than 15 minutes to see how they respond in terms of lactate and physiology. There's no mention of temperature in the, any of these red flag features. and uh, That's a bit of a paradigm shift, I think, for me and, and for the, my students as well. Yeah, and there's always been this idea that some people think that the higher your temperature, the more unwell you are, but there's actually no evidence at all to suggest that. Um, and you see people who've just got viral illnesses who 
you, they don't need antibiotics, they've got a viral illness, and they're right goring their temperature's 39.2, just doesn't mean they're more unwell than someone who's bacteremic with a temperature of 37.6. So the temperature itself isn't necessarily uh, the bill and end all and can be affected by recent use of antipyretics as well, which disguises the temperature, doesn't make them less septic. As I said, this very um, important bit here, and I mean, for those uh, who this may be juniors, it mentions discuss with consultants, it mentions you want a, uh, a senior ST3 or above to really see the patient if possible. But then there's also this mention if your lactate is above four and they're hypotensive to get an early referral into critical care as well. Yeah, so people who've got lactate greater than four or a low blood pressure, these are the septic shock patients, and these are patients who are highly likely to need invasive lines and uh, blood pressure support and they may also go on to need things like invasive ventilation or renal support or things like that and they're going to need a higher level of care so you need to be discussing with the critical care team early so you can deliver those interventions early and improve outcomes. So those are our red flag patients, our high risk category patients so moving down there's the, the moderate to high risk criteria, the, the amber group if you will. Yeah and that's, that's perfect, we talk about amber or about yellow risk or moderate to high risk criteria. And so, again, a list of generally easy numbers to remember, a couple of sort of subjective things, but most of these things are objective. It's a reason why you think these patients might be a moderate risk, high, and it's moderate high risk of poor outcome from sepsis. So if they have two of these criteria, or their blood pressure is a bit low but not low enough to trigger as red, they need some blood tests doing. And these blood tests are looking for if signs of inflammatory markers and things like that, but importantly, what they're looking for is the blood cultures need to be done again see what the lactate's doing so if the lactate's high so over two or they're using these come back and sure they've got AKI these are actually patients who are at high risk of poor outcomes these then move across into the treatment arm of uh, red flag sepsis and then you'll have a group of people who um, have a lactate rate less than two and no AKI or you have a group of people who only have one uh, moderate high risk criteria and then you get them seen within a few hours, is within three hours of consideration of antibiotics or manage definitive condition if things are known. So things a little bit less pacey if you're happy that they're, they're not as unwell. Mm. But don't forget, people's use needs don't turn around very quickly. So if you send that UNA off and it's going to be back in 60 minutes, you need to be making sure you're keeping an eye on that. And that, uh, that quote, you know, the figure here of uh, within three hours of consideration of antibiotics fits in very well with our four-hour target down here in, in A&E, you know, that they should be getting antibiotics within A&E. Yeah, generally, if people need um, antibiotics uh, for their sepsis, then it's got to be given in A&E, really. There's no excuse for them for not being given. I think some people worry may worry about the fact that if you've only got one moderate to high-risk criteria, you get a review within an hour and then think about doing blood tests. So... What we do in our department is that if you come in with just one high risk criteria, you're getting your blood done uh, on arrival like any other patient would do to minimise delay in care further down the downstream and reduce delay to antibiotics. And then moving down from our amber and yellow um, group, we've got uh, the green group, um, low risk criteria now. Yeah, and those are patients who are effectively screened out as being low risk of anything and so just get a clinical assessment and they can be ambulatory patients you don't have to necessarily put line in or do bloods you don't have to take them to recess or anything like that and that's you going I think they've got an infection they may have some systemic effects their infection because you can feel just generally unwell when you have an infection but actually they're not triggering on anything that says they're going to like to have a poor outcome mm -hmm. so we've got time to actually clinically assess them and give them the most appropriate care rather than going in heavy with early antibiotics and fluids. 
So yeah, at least normal behaviour, no high risk or moderate to high risk criteria met. So you, like you said, they, they could feel grotty, got a bit of cellulitis maybe, but there's no sign of organ dysfunction, there's no sign of poor perfusion. And that's what it's all about. You know, Susceptus is this idea of a sort of atypical or dysregulated response to an infection and it's a systemic thing and actually the hallmark is you get um, organ dysfunction and hyperperfusion and that's what we're trying to correct as well as treat the infection. And so if you have no evidence of end organ dysfunction or no evidence of hyperfusion, then you're not septic. Um, so that's why that's there. And um, as I said, we talked earlier a bit about the management of the high-risk uh, patients. Uh, still no getting away from the sepsis 6. Um, it's still cornerstone, isn't it? Yeah, and septic 6 um, covers the basics to give you an op- option to kind of look after your patients well. And I always remember it's three things in and three things out. So the three things that you want out of your patient are blood cultures, I'll say it again, because it's something that we know that we're poor at doing, especially in the more unwell patients when things are rushed. So two good clean sets of cultures. Um, you want urine output monitoring out of your patient to see how well their kidneys are working and also a state of fluid balance status. And you want that lactate out of your patient. I think what's important, we think about doing one lactate when somebody gets here, but actually it's making sure you do repeat lactates. Mm. Either see that they're improving or if a patient gets more unwell, you recheck that lactate to see how you're doing and whether actually they're getting more well in front of you and actually their lactate's going up and their, their risk is changing. So those are the three things out. And the three things in are fairly simple. It's give them oxygen, give them antibiotics, and give them fluids. And um, again, it just mentioned here at the bottom, just to, uh, as a highlight for uh, people following our guidelines with us. Um, it also mentions the uh, AKI NICE guidelines, which are CG169 as well, which people can look at uh, for there. Um, I think the AKI is a, a major uh, source of complication for patients with sepsis and, and cannot be underestimated and must always be checked, mustn't it? Yeah, indeed. And they say it's one of the things that makes you a high-risk patient. You know, your kidneys are one of the most sensitive organs to perfusion and uh, also kind of fairly precious. So. It's good to make sure they are well looked after. So, again, look at those. And the AKA guideline will have the definition of AKI mm. in there for you to look up at your leisure. Mm. I was taught by a consultant at medical school that some organs, like the liver, are very forgiving, but the kidneys will take you down with them if they don't like things. They just uh, start acting up very early on. Okay, so that's our guidelines. We've risk stratified our patient, uh, and we've talked a bit about uh, the management of the patient as well. Uh, so we talk a bit about source control for our patients as well. So yeah, so I mean, when you look at the most common sources of infection, um, the easiest data to hand to have this is the, uh, is the PROMISE trial from a couple of years ago looking at UK data. Um, so the majority of people in the PROMISE trials so are severe sepsis and septic shock. About a third of patients had the lungs as their site of infection. The next two uh, sources uh, were blood and urinary tract. So fairly easy things, they're going to get antibiotics and organ support. But actually there will be times when people have got either a prosthesis that's infected or have got an indwelling line or something, got a foreign body, or they've got a collection. And actually giving them antibiotics is great, but what you really need to do is get the source of that infection out. Mm. And so it's you know having that broad-minded approach and remembering the silly things that count as foreign bodies or indwelling things. So the UTI and the guy who's got a long-term catheter swap the catheter because <laughs> that catheter is probably where the bugs are coming from um, if people have got a cannula in that looks red it's great you can give antibiotics down it but you probably want to take it out and put a new one in uh, and things like that the one thing to be careful for are things like Hickman lines it depends why they're in 
And so our trust policy varies about the indications. So our TPN servers are very precious about their Hickman lines and don't like us pulling them out of source control in the middle of the night. So if they've got something like a, a tunneled line, it's worth speaking to the team who are responsible for it, just seeing how precious it is. Um, but otherwise, yeah, anything that's in there you think that shouldn't be there is not, not normal and always a collection of pus. Get it out. Mm. And uh, that promise trial that you, you spoke about, that's the, uh, the protocolised management and sepsis trial, isn't it? Um, it was a study of uh, 56 NHS hospitals in England. Yeah, it was one of a, a, a trio of studies that were designed to work together. Um, so it was the promise was the UK one, uh, there was process in the USA and there was a rise in mostly Australia and New Zealand but also Finland, Hong Kong and Ireland and they all looked like the protocolised management of sepsis, the old um, early goal directed therapy based on the Manning Rivers paper from the early 2000s and compared that to standard care um, and it found that basically our usual care is caught up and no longer is sepsis somebody who just sits in the corner with the infection um, and usual care was as good as early goal directed therapy. And the cornerstones of usual care were giving a rat's ass, giving early antibiotics and giving fluids. Mm. So if you can get all that done, you start people from a good place. And then finally, Chris, uh, there is just one last cohort of patients we do need to talk about. And, and um, those are patients who are at risk of getting neutropenic sepsis. So yeah, neutropenic sepsis is a small subgroup of our sepsis patients. Um, the best way to think about it is anybody who's on anti-cancer treatment uh, is what the NICE guideline would say. And you don't wait for somebody's blood count to come back and tell you if they're neutropenic or not. If they're if you're on anti-cancer treatment and you think they're septic, then you're going to treat them with neutropenic sepsis. Um, the treatment's fairly similar. The NICE guideline just is a bit specific about the antibiotics you give. Um, so generally, everybody should have tazacin as the recommended first-line antimicrobial for um, neutropenic sepsis. But do check your local trust uh, guidelines and policies because you may have second or third antibodies to give with the tazacin. It'll certainly have a what to do with their penallergic guideline. Uh, the other thing to think about in patients who are on anti-cancer treatment is a lot of these patients may well have um, tunneled access in, like we mentioned before. Um, so if you can, you may well go to that for taking their bloods and giving all their therapy, which is fine. They may have poor peripheral veins, but do make sure you get a peripheral set of blood cultures to just see what comes up in those bloods. Because if it's only the line that's growing positive and the peripheral ones are not, it might mean that it's the line that's infected and has obviously big implications for the management of that patient. And involving the oncology team as well. Yeah, and involving the uh, oncology team early on as well for them to look after the patient is uh, undoubtedly a good idea. What I find is good is um, a lot of patients I've seen who are on anti-cancer treatment, some who are presented with neutropenic stem cells without, are given an awful lot of information. Um, so many are told to uh, monitor their temperatures at home every day, any sign of a pyrexia to present to, uh, to hospital as a risk of, of getting neutropenic sepsis. That's, that is useful. Yeah, that's brilliant for them. So they self-monitor and they're normally quite switched on. So if they're coming to you saying, I'm worried about this, it's well worth listening. A lot of that also is you'll find a lot of these patients will probably go directly to their cancer centre. So as part of that self-monitoring, they'll be in contact with the oncology nurses. Um, and so depending on how your site's set up and where the, where the oncology service is, um, they may well go directly there. So you might not see many of these patients, but you may see them if they're out of area. So you know, just because you're on oncology treatment doesn't mean you can't go on holiday. Um, or because they've been on well in a public place and someone's called an ambulance, they've come to your ED. So it's something to bear in mind. Thank you very much for coming, Chris. Yeah, not a problem.
That was the Take Orally New Nicepsis Guidelines podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter where we'll put up links to the guidelines mentioned and you can contact us to suggest topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes. For more information on education and research opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.